Welcome to the Woody Report. In this podcast, Washington and Lee School of Law Professor Karen Woody and host Tom Fox discuss issues on white-collar crime, compliance, international corruption, securities law and accounting fraud, and internal corporate investigations. From current events to topical issues to academic research and thought leadership, Karen Woody helps lead the discussion on these issues on this new and exciting podcast. The Woody Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. In this episode, we take a deep dive into the recently released trial court decision in a shareholder action against Solar Winds based upon the Caremark Doctrine. It was a claim that the board of directors had uh, violated their Caremark duty. It's a really interesting opinion. Uh, the court denied the claim, finding that because there was no violation of law, there was no underlying basis for a Caremark claim. It's a decision that every compliance professional needs to digest. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back again with Professor Karen Woody for another episode of the Woody Report. Today, we're going to take up a Caremark case, which was not successful. It is styled Construction Industry Laborers Pension Fund versus Bingle et al., and it involves the Solar Winds hack. So, Karen, with that incredibly long-winded introduction, first of all, welcome back. Thank you, Tom. I love being here. This is great. I'm glad to be here talking about this particular case. So this is a Caremark claim. We're going to assume everybody listening to this podcast knows what that is. So we won't reiterate or re-litigate Caremark, but it's a Caremark claim which was unsuccessful. We both found the opinion incredibly instructive. Uh, This is not a Delaware Supreme Court. This is Delaware Chancery Court, which is, I believe, the trial court. I'm going to have questions about the trial court and its role in all of this. But the SolarWinds hack was a massive hack. 18,000 users of the SolarWinds tool were impacted by the hack was through a third party that then rolled into SolarWinds. That third the nefarious actors put a piece of malware on the software they inserted into the third party. It then went to SolarWinds who then sent it out to all of their users. And it was in play for at least a year before SolarWinds discovered it from December 2019 to December 2020. It really was a massive hack. It caused a 40% drop in SolarWinds stock after the hack was released. SolarWinds does a lot of work in the national security area. So there was a very, very much gnashing of teeth around what it may have meant for national security issues. All of that is background to say that the plaintiffs, one of whom's name I read, filed suit against the directors for violation of the Caremark Doctrine. And I've already said twice, I think, they were not successful. But Karen, in this case, I found one of the best explanations of not simply the Caremark Doctrine, but the related doctrine of what is bad faith in Delaware and how that's applied by the court. So with that, you want to tell us about the holding. Sure. As you said, the holding is that the motion to dismiss was granted. So the plaintiffs were unsuccessful in clearing that very important hurdle. Because as we've seen with most of these Caremark Doctrine sort of cases, that really is the whole ball game. You get over the motion to dismiss, everybody settles, everyone gets a little skittish. So the whole case comes down to really these first two pleadings, this the complaint and then this motion to dismiss. It is 
what I find fascinating about this this opinion is that is as you say really well written, really easy to read of walking through the steps of the Caremark doctrine and everything that gets baked into it. But the most important comment and one that I think will continue to come up and still be on the bubble as we move forward into areas of risk that are not maybe covered by positive law. So that concept of positive law comes up a lot in this opinion. And what we mean by that is, as we've seen with many of the other Caremark opinions, there has been some violation of some regulation. And that becomes a nucleus or really the groundwork and framework by which the plaintiffs then try to construct their Caremark claim. 30,000 foot level of that is you take the Boeing case. They had violations of FAA regulations, a number of other things that point to clear breaches of the company in some form of compliance. And so that then again, sets the stage. Here in SolarWinds, we have a cybersecurity breach and there aren't really very clear regulations, in fact, none at all in terms of positive law about what is required in order to be in compliance regarding cybersecurity. And so the question here, as we see, as we move forward into both many, maybe Caremark claims based on cybersecurity breaches that cause a fair amount of corporate trauma, as they did here, or even into the ESG space where there are potential violations related to climate issues, where there aren't, where the government almost is a little behind, meaning there aren't laws yet in place. Does that then mean that there isn't this enough to make a camera claim about the corporate trauma? So this, and then the, as is cited in this case, the recent Marriott cybersecurity breach, are these sort of first test cases. Sure, the fact that the SEC or the government hasn't yet put down a positive law saying what is absolutely required for a cybersecurity program, doesn't mean that there isn't the same level of injury occurring. And so here was this test case of, can we move forward with Caremark without piggybacking on a violation of a regulation or some other law? So this was, again, they were a little bit on their back foot and not at the point was not for their own fault, but because they can't point to a cybersecurity regulation that had been breached, which I thought was fascinating especially because SolarWinds was something we read about in the paper. We knew about this. This was one that was going to be a good test case for this idea because it was a big deal. It was Russian hacking related to things involving government functions, government contractors. So we knew about it. It had been in the press. There was definitely this sort of drumbeat that this was a something that this was a major problem for the company was that going to be enough to get over this hurdle that we can't point to an actual regulation that was violated that we can't point to the lack of compliance other than this a few places where both the sec and then i think even the doj there are a few cybersecurity guidance documents but not an actual violation of a regulation so that i thought was the first like interesting point that really get that Vice Chancellor Glasgow really drills down on this idea of are we even in a Caremark situation if we aren't pointing to a violation of positive law so that was my first sort of major takeaway another one that I'll just highlight I think is interesting or actually going back to that first one is that what we're talking about if you recall from what we talked about on Marchand is when there is some violation or something that happens with the company taking their eye off the ball of something that is considered mission critical. So really the question here is, can we then at least maybe get to a Caremark analysis 
by pointing to, of course, cybersecurity will be mission critical to a company like this. But again, we don't have some clear, you have clearly violated some other regulation. So all of those things swirled together, came to a head in this particular scenario. The other one that I think is an interesting analogy to the Marchand and then the Marchand line of cases is that cybersecurity in some ways is a little different because this is a hacker, meaning this was a criminal act done to the company rather than, as we saw in Marchand, just people really falling asleep at the switch and not having a clean ice cream factory and things like this. This was something that is almost maybe in some ways harder to prevent or to foresee. It's all, That's something that's a sort of theory in law that you can't really foresee the criminal acts of someone else. And so I wonder if that also colored this and made it distinguishable from the Marchand line of cases where clearly the company, one, was violating a regulation of their, in, their non-compliant with some regulation of safety or health or something along those lines. And then again, the, what, the, what caused the corporate trauma here for SolarWinds was again, these third party criminal acts. So all of that together, I think very much set the stage for an interesting, where are we going next with Caremark? Because as we said in the previous podcast, cybersecurity will be this next, I think, major area of what is required of the board in order to be compliant to make sure this doesn't happen, to have some finger on the switch here of making sure that this kind of incident doesn't occur. And that is really what the court has to you know, dive into here, which is what compliance programs, if any, did they stand up? What monitoring did they have? And so that's really, I think, what we're getting at. It's fascinating. It's a fascinating opinion that I think will point the direction that I think the Delaware courts will go, certainly for anything that doesn't involve a straight violation of a regulation. Do you have thoughts about that, Tom? So the, although there was the lengthy discussion on positive law that you articulated, the court did say cybersecurity was mission critical for an online company. And then they went on to say, we don't have to get to the answer the question of whether a positive law violation is required because they didn't meet, I'm going to analyze it in terms of the Caremark standards and they didn't meet it. So I thought that was a punt. Now that really gets to part of this discussion I wanted to have with you that of the court, this decision came from not the judge, but the chancery court, the trial court, inferior court, whatever you may want to call it and whatever they call it in Delaware, it's not the Delaware Supreme court. And so in the second and third reading, I began to wonder if the trial court judge was saying to the Delaware Supreme Court, I find this to be an open question. And I, Mm. the trial court, need some guidance from the highest court, the Delaware Supreme Court, because the Marchand decision, that's the Bluebell case we've talked about, that was decided by the Delaware Supreme Court. And and most of us felt that was uh, an extension or perhaps a reformulation of Caremark in a way we hadn't seen yeah. before Marchand. And so it's appropriate for a state Supreme Court, if there's a change in the law, or a reformulation of a doctrine to, to make that, as opposed to a trial court, which may not be comfortable with going that far, though I think certainly some trial court judges are. Does the fact this was at the trial court stage or the inferior court stage in Delaware, do you think that ha- either had an impact on the court's thinking or would have an impact going forward on using this case as 
That's a great question. And actually, if I'm not mistaken, I think Caremark also was out of the Chancery Corps. I think Chancellor Allen wrote Caremark, and that in itself was a kind of precedent-setting, obviously, case out of in 1996. And so there is, there have been some markers or precedent of the Chancery Court moving pretty far, or at least setting a very clear standard that the Supreme Court hadn't yet done. And I think that's fair because, but like we said, the Marchand Court, which really was this, seemed like record scratch out of nowhere. We didn't expect this because, as we know, and then is repeated in this Solar Winds opinion, Caremark claim is the hardest theory upon which plaintiffs can attempt to prevail. It's very hard to hold directors personally liable for bad faith, evidence of bad faith. It's it's a big ask. And that the Marchand case really was, like I said, this sort of left turn in some ways of what we've seen from a number of the Caremark cases that have come up. And so I take your point. That makes sense that they're saying, hey, I don't know what's going on over there at the Delaware Supreme Court, but maybe let us know since you're the ones who started us down this path. Even you could tell there's almost a little bit of an annoyance from the Chancery Court <laughs> it's here. It's not a little. Way- yeah, he says the, what does he say? The Caremark claims once relative rarities have bloomed like dandelions after a warm spring rain is the first, the second paragraph here. So they're, I think, getting inundated with Caremark claims, to be sure, but they're also saying, like, the Pandora's box you open with Marchand is not going away, so maybe let us know if this is, if you guys have different thoughts on this. So I think, I take that point. That's interesting that they, um, they are asking for the Supreme Court maybe to give a little more guidance. So let me turn to a point you raised a couple of times which I think we really need to explore. And that is the standard for a Caremark claim. It is, everyone understands it's not negligence. But I don't think people fully understand it, but this court in this decision made absolutely clear, it's not gross negligence. It's not an entire want of care. It is bad faith. And bad faith is almost always with an affirmative act. And so the court really went through and described bad faith in the context of claims against directors. And they cited a case that we were both familiar with, although perhaps we haven't studied as as much as we should in the context of Caremark. And that's Walt Disney. And I'm going to read what the trial court cited as the Delaware Supreme Court's definition of bad faith. One, where the fiduciary intentionally acts with a purpose other than advancing the best interests of the corporation. Two where the fiduciary acts with intent to violate the applicable, applicable positive law, or three, where the fiduciary intentionally fails to act in the face of a known duty to act, demonstrating a conscious disregard for duties. After rereading that definition, I became more comfortable with the court's decision in Marchand because I think we saw that. But the trial court here in Solar Winds did not find bad faith. So what, what do you think of the bad faith standard? Is it the highest civil legal standard? And what did you think of the court's formulation around? Yeah, I think that's right. And I think it's a good reminder because as we were discussing before, Marchand and its progeny, if I would call it that, the four cases after Marchand that were able to piggyback on that sort of daylight that people saw in the Caremark, what I call the citadel, the the fortress around directors that had a little crack in it after Marchand. We don't see that much discussion of this standard that comes from Disney, 
as much in those cases. And so you're right that it almost is that bad faith got watered down a little bit in some of those cases, because you're right that it should be the highest standard. It is intent. It's scienter. It is, if we were in criminal, I would call this just, you know, the men's reign, this criminal intent idea. It is one of the hardest, the highest proof of intent and usually is the Achilles heel of the plaintiffs to, to, be, to be able to plead with particularity. Evidence of scienter is always tricky. Then the securities class actions claims under the PSLRA. And then again, here, this is a similar standard. And so you're right that in Marshawn, you could point, if we look at those three prongs of the Disney standard, you could see that Mar that board certainly could have met any number of maybe those three prongs. But you're, I think that it is fair that they're saying this isn't just being asleep at the wheel. This isn't gross negligence. This is intentionally not putting the interests of the corporation first. And so it's, it, I think you're right that this sort of doubling down on how high that standard is very much an attempt to patch up that crack that we've seen in Caremark of late. I'm just saying, listen, this was always going to be a really high standard. And the reason is because we, where we get to, if you cross this threshold, is that personal liability for directors who here had been briefed on cybersecurity risks and like they weren't completely clueless about this or just not paying attention or just off not doing their job at all thing yeah i think it's i think it's a nice interesting reminder as i say i think indicates where we'll see a number of these opinions going that i think the caremark standard is going to hold firm at least until we see or as we said a couple things a clear violation of positive law that already gets us pretty far down the field in terms of a Caremark claim. But then also this idea that then that violation was done with an, an intentional an intentional turning a blind eye, meaning that just clear abdication of the duties of the board. Yeah, I think it, it's, it was a doubling down back on back to the height that the Caremark wall should have. And then it was, a, I thought, an excellent discussion of the establishing bad faith under the Caremark standards, because there's two standards under Caremark you can establish bad faith under. And he called them prongs one and two. Prong one was, quote, when the directors completely fail to implement any reporting or information systems or controls, end quote. And then prong two, quote, having implemented a system or controls, consciously fail to monitor or oversee its operations, thus disabling themselves from being informed of the risks or problems involved, end quote. And then he further went on to say, it's the lack of controls is not in and of itself evidence of bad faith. What is evidence of bad faith is that it's a risk within positive law and you didn't have a risk management system for that. And so that to me now goes back and explains Marshawn to me more clearly, which mm. was that you have to look at your risk. And if you're a food product company, it's food product safety. You're an airline company, it's airlines and airplane safety. So it maybe gets us a little further along the line, uh, but it requires that violation of, of positive law. And it's not just the lack of controls. You have to have a lack of controls really done in the face of either not looking at your own risks, assessing your own risk, or assessing those and not doing anything. So I thought that discussion was, for me, incredibly instructive as well. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And then the court went on to, as you started to talk about the factors, and when he, and he did a great job, I shouldn't say he, the court, did a great job in laying out the factors 
as pled by the plaintiffs. And when you read all of the factors, you and I might come to the conclusion this was not good management. We might even come to the conclusion that there was gross negligence here, but that's not the standard. And he, I thought, did a great job. The court did a great job of laying that out with, yes, they may have made some mistakes, but they made mistakes. If they made mistakes, it doesn't rise to the level of bad faith. So that part of his decision, I found incredibly enlightening because I thought it made some really big mistakes, but that's not bad faith, guys. That's just made mistakes. And I thought yeah, this was, yeah. go ahead. No, I was going to say, back to this concept of what is required here and this idea of the lack of positive law, is that something that should hamstring the plaintiffs just because there isn't yet maybe a regulation? But I think what's interesting, and I think that you're right, the court here does a good job of pointing to, which is in the absence of positive law, the other side of that slippery slope is the court opining on a business decision, which is the court getting involved in whether or not that was a bad idea. There's something very black and white about you have violated this law. And so that is the reason that is the jumping off point, because in the absence of that, there's going to be a lot of discretion about whether or not we're creeping into a business judgment rule type situation with the court opining on whether or not this should have been done better or, or what's the standard here of an adequate compliance program or adequate prevention of corporate trauma. But let's at least point to, we know you violated FAA regulations or FDA regulations. That is an easy jumping off point. And so I get how that seems, especially in cybersecurity, these new sort of emerging potential risks for companies that seems a little bit unfair for plaintiffs because you're right, the SEC hasn't yet promulgated the regulation about cybersecurity. However, the alternative is that absent that regulation, the court's going to jump in and decide if you did adequate compliance. And that's also a very tricky and sticky place for the court to be, and they don't want to be there. I really like the way you've used the analysis in this case to, to look at perhaps ESG in the absence of U.S. regulations around it. And I think you're absolutely spot on that this may give us a clue as to which way the Delaware court could go at this point, although that could change if we have regulation somewhere down the road. Right. I think that's Karen, yeah, unfortunately, we shall see. we're near the end of our time for this episode, but it's been a ton of fun having read the case several times now. I found it incredibly instructive, and I hope not only all the counsel out there listening to this, but compliance officers will read this so that they understand their board's obligations in a variety of areas, including where there's a positive law and perhaps where there's not a positive law. I can't see, wait to see what we come up with for next time. Exactly. Thanks so much, Tom. This is a pleasure. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Woody Report. Uh, if you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes. It was to help get the word out about this newest podcast on the Compliance Podcast Network. We're going to link to Karen Woody's LinkedIn profile in the show notes. So if you have any questions, uh, you can follow up directly with Karen. This is Tom Fox. Thanks again for listening to this episode of The Woody Report.